All right, this is not producer Maureen McMurray. It's Taylor Quimby. That's right. Hello, Virginia Prescott. What fun literary food fact do you have for us today? Actually, I've got a quote, and this comes from a Kurt Vonnegut novel. It goes, you can't just eat good food. You've got to talk about it, too. Let me guess. Breakfast of Champions? Actually, it's from his 1979 novel, Jailbird. But either way, I know one good way to get a conversation about food going. Uh, I think I know this one. Blue Apron. (laughs) (laughs) You knew it was coming. For less than $10 per person per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. Well, here's a conversation starter for this month. I made warm smoked trout and asparagus salad with fingerling potatoes and garlic croutons. Oh, my God. Honestly, don't you love talking over and, let's say, about a good meal? It helps with the conversation when it slows. You can say, hmm, this asparagus is very good. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash 10-minute. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash 10-minute. That's the number 10, the word minute. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. This is Ian Rankin with the 10-Minute Writer's Workshop. And I'm Virginia Prescott. Ian Rankin is best known for two characters, Inspector John Rebus, the protagonist of now 21 mystery novels, and the city of Edinburgh, whose dark corners come alive in Rankin's hands. Rebus made his debut in the 1987 novel Knots and Crosses. In Rankin's newest book, called Rather Be the Devil, a retired Rebus returns to a case that has haunted him for decades. Ian Rankin, this is your 21st in the Inspector Reba series. The book is called Rather Be the Devil. John Rebus is now retired, and he's quit smoking. How could you do this? Set him off in this simmering rage of nicotine withdrawal right at the beginning of the book. Well, if you're thinking of writing a series, I would suggest that you keep all this stuff in mind before you start. I didn't know when I wrote the first Rebus book that there were going to be 20-odd books in the series, and I'd given him all these bad habits smoking too much, drinking too much, not looking after himself. So, of course, eventually that's going to have to bite him, you know. And my wife has been saying for a few books now, he's had a really lucky time of it. Surely his health is going to have to become an issue uh, sooner rather than later. And she's got a friend who's a, a GP, a doctor in general practice in Edinburgh. So I sat down with her and I said, what would you expect a guy like Rebus to have? What problems, what issues? Um, and that's what happens to him in the latest book, that all the bad living he's done in the last 20 books catches up with him. Hmm. How about your bad habits? Have you got any that you're willing to share with us? Only good habits. I'm getting better as I get older. Maybe that's what's rubbing off on Rebus. Took up jogging with a, a couple of mates who are, we're all in our 50s, none of us in the first flush of youth or indeed vigor. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, I've never smoked. People sometimes say, no, you must have smoked. Rebus is a very convincing smoker. I mean, all I say is both my parents did. So maybe I got it from them, the notion of at what points during the day or during a stressful situation would you feel like lighting a cigarette? Um, I do drink too much, and I do drink in the same bar as Rebus. It's a real bar in Edinburgh. So, uh, yeah, I can feel for him. I feel for him. You spent three decades with this man. What, what is your relationship like with him? I mean, do you look at the world through his eyes sometimes? No, I mean, I think I'm very good at switching off. So when I'm not thinking about starting a new book or actually writing a book, I think I can push him to one side fairly successfully. So I'm not seeing the world through his eyes. 
you know, I retired them a while ago in, at the end of book 17. And for five years, I didn't really think about them that much, although readers kept saying, when's he coming back? When's he coming back? And when I got an idea for a book that had to feature him, I was a little bit nervous. Would his voice still be there? But in fact, he'd just been sitting in a little cell inside my head. And when I unlocked the door and let him out, he came bounding out. He was delighted to be back on the page. How about for you, sitting down to write? How much plotting or planning have you done even before writing? Or does it come out when you're in the process? I I don't do a lot. I've got a folder at home, which is called Ian's Big Box of Ideas. And anything that comes along during the course of a year, I'll, you know, maybe something in a newspaper, I'll just um, cut it out with a pair of scissors and put it in there. Or I get a vague idea for a storyline, I'll write it on the back of a beer mat or on a piece of paper and stick it in there. And then, you know, come November when I'm thinking, oh, there's a deadline looming, I need to get another idea, I need to get a book, I'll open up the the big box of ideas and see what's in there. And there's always something that just grabs me and I go, oh, hang on a minute, that's interesting. And then I just start and I can even riff. Uh, almost like a musician. I just start. I don't know where the book's going to go. I don't know which characters are going to be useful to me or not useful to me. And so the first draft is rough and ready, but it's but it you know it gives me the backbone. It gives me the spine of the book. And then the second, third, fourth draft uh, polishes it and polishes it and polishes it. And the story has a momentum of its own and has a shape of its own that only it knows, and it will reveal itself to me only when I start to write the book. Do you share your writing with other people as you're working on it? Uh, Only my wife, and then sparingly. I mean, I will come down for dinner, and she'll say, oh, God, what's going on? She can see by the look of my face that I'm stuck. And so I'll maybe bounce ideas off her, or she'll say things like, I don't understand. Why is he doing that? Or would he put himself in that position? Or would they have that kind of system in place 30 years ago? Um, Or is it a more recent thing? So the book actually gets edited. I'll go back and take all that on board and then change it. So then the big argument is with my editor, because if they want changes made, I say, well, wait a minute, this book's already been edited. You want to edit it again? So aside from working with your wife, what do you do when you are stuck? How how do you know when (laughs) to walk away and what do you do? You'd walk away. The glorious thing about being self-employed is that I can just say, well, today's not a good day at the office. I'm just going to go for a walk. And, you know, I might sit down in the morning, try and write. It doesn't come. You know, the words aren't coming. The scenes aren't coming. The characters aren't alive. I go, okay, push it to one side. Go for a walk. Go to the cafe. Do a crossword. Do some shopping. um, Try again in the afternoon. Still not happening. Okay, I'll maybe go out again or I'll go to the cinema or I'll watch TV at home, read a book come back in the evening and sometimes suddenly it clicks. And when I'm writing a book, I do try and write every single day because I'm always afraid that if I take a pause that I'll forget what's going on because I've got all these subplots and characters all buzzing around in my head and because I don't plan it or structure it in advance very carefully, I'm afraid that I'll lose them. If I let them go, they won't come back again. So I try and write every single day. And it means that the books are written quickly then. The first draft is written very quickly. And that injects pace, I think. I mean, I'm in a hurry for to finish the books. I want to know what's going to happen. Hmm. As a writer, I want to know what's going to happen. And if I want to know what's going to happen, hopefully the reader wants to know as well. I normally ask people about their distractions or their worst distractions. But was fascinated to see that your first book was actually written as a distraction. You were procrastinating (laughs) from getting your PhD done in Scottish literature, was it? 
Yeah, I was doing a PhD on Muriel Spark, who wrote The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie, um, but I haven't got the funding for it. I thought, well, do I really want to do this, or would I rather use that three years of funding to try and become a writer myself? What would Muriel want, I thought? And I thought, well, she isn't going to want an unreadable thesis on her work sitting in a dusty university library. She'd rather have you tried to become a writer yourself. So that's what I did. I wrote three novels in three years and um, never did finish the PhD, but uh, the first novel was never published. Uh, The second book was taken by a very small press, a very small publishing house in Edinburgh. Um, But because of that, an agent came and said, you got anything else? And I said, well, I'm writing this book about a cop, actually. And she sent it to six publishers in London and the first five turned it down. So that was the first Rebus novel. And the sixth one said, yeah, OK, we'll take a chance on that. Now, you've sold millions of books. That first Rebus novel was Knots and Crosses, 1987, if I've got that right. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Ever tempted to go back to those publishers who turned you down and say, hey, hey. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I mean, there'll be various reasons for them turning it down. I mean, at that time, crime fiction wasn't as sexy as it is now. It didn't have the high, the prime profile that it has now. You know, I think a lot of publishers thought that the British crime novel was the Agatha Christie school. It was that type of cosy. Um, And I was writing something that was much grittier. It was urban. It was really influenced by the American crime novel and the American crime movie. That was the kind of stuff that was influencing me. It wasn't Miss Marple and Vickers holding tea parties on the lawn (laughs) while someone's playing croquet next door and there's some obscure poison used to poison Lady Bracknell. In the, in the maze or something. You know, it wasn't that kind of book. Um, I was trying to write about contemporary Scotland and urban Scotland and using the crime novel as a way of doing that. You had a pretty interesting array of jobs. you want to list some of them for us? Uh, I worked on a vineyard in France. I worked on a farm looking after the pigs. I worked as an uh, internal revenue collector of taxes. Uh, I worked on a folktale centre as a collector of folktales. I worked on a music magazine. I was a punk musician for a while, but I didn't make any money at all at that. I was <laughs> singing in the second second best punk band in Fife, the part of Scotland where I grew up. There were only two punk bands in Fife. At what that was time the name of we the band? Dead. Uh, the Dancing Pigs, we became famous in the Rebus novels. In one of the Rebus novels, I needed a band who were huge global phenomenon to be playing a Greenpeace gig in Scotland against the oil industry. And I thought, well, who do I choose? You two, REM. Oh, why not the Dancing Pigs? So <laughs> in fiction, if not in real life, we became huge. It's <laughs> a great upgrade for the Dancing Pigs. <laughs> I know, but, you know, fiction is its its a fun type of therapy. It's a way of making sense of the world, but also having some fun with the world and and projecting. You know, the thing about writers is we're just kids who we just we're not going to grow up. We're not going to throw away our toys and our invisible friends. We're we're not going to stop playing all those role playing games that all children play. So we're kind of, we're all Peter Pan figures, and um, and it should be fun. I mean, that's another thing about writing. If it's hard work, it probably isn't working. You know, it should be fun to write these things down on paper. It should be exciting. Ian Rankin, thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you. Ian Rankin is the author of 38 books, including Rather Be the Devil, the most recent in his Inspector Rebus series. The 10-Minute Writers' Workshop is a production of NHPR, produced by Sarah Plourd with help from Taylor Quimby. Music in this episode from Poddington Bear. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoy the podcast, leave a rating and review, which will help other people find us. Thanks so much for listening.